0: Welcome back once again to the Golden Age of Islam. Uh, today, as in the previous episode, we're going way back to the beginning and looking at life in pre-Islamic Arabia, what is known in history as the Jahaliya. Uh, Jahaliya means ignorance, the age of the ignorance before Islam, it is called. And today, we're going to talk about religion in the age of the Jahaliya. And as you may imagine, this is a very sensitive subject, and it's also a very difficult one to talk about because we're venturing into some really unclear territory here. We have really only bits and pieces of information for much of what we're going to discuss today. Uh, Unlike the Greeks or the Romans, even the ancient Egyptians, who built a lot of stone structures and statues that have survived until this day. Uh, The Arabs, of course, were Bedouin. They built very little, and very little using stone, of course, and very little of that has survived. So we just don't have the records, really, from the ancient Arabians. We have more records of people talking about them. And so that, of course, is a big enough challenge in itself but then we have the uh, fact that much of what we have is coming from religious sources and particularly traditions and stories that grew up to explain the story, what happened before Islam and how we got to that point. So it's very hard to edit out you know, what information we know objectively from non-religious sources. Right. It's like the same issues we have when people want to talk about the historical Jesus. Well, where do we get information? Uh, so, for example, you know, one source that we use and is very important in this area is pre-Islamic poetry, because poetry was really the art form of the Arabs, and that, that's what was passed down. And so pre-Islamic poetry makes a lot of references to their religion, their gods, and so forth. But this in itself is uh, suspect because many scholars, very respected scholars, you know, including uh, one of the greatest Arab writers of all times, Taha Hussein, uh, really questioned how well pre-Islamic poetry has been preserved. And, I mean, he made a, a very strong case that it was modified later on to support the narratives, the Islamic narratives. So, I mean, we, we really don't know. And in some cases, I mean, it's very clear. We have stories that, um, you know, predate Islam, but obviously have got Islamic elements um, inserted into them. I mean, you see this even in something like the Arabian Nights, where it's really a mix of, you know, obviously non-monotheistic and um, Muslim elements. Anyway... So that's just to explain, uh, you know, some of the difficulties we have in really understanding this. Now, I should say from the outset, before anyone gets upset or offended, um, there's a big difference in what we're talking here between Muslim scriptures and the Quran in, quote, traditions. So the Quran itself is really not a problem, because it gives a pretty accurate picture of what the situation was like in Mecca during the prophet's lifetime, um, before his prophethood and uh, the opposition he faced, and that pretty well tracks with what other historical evidence we have. So that's not really an issue. But in any religion, uh, there are a lot of, quote, traditions, Meaning traditional beliefs that we don't find in the Bible or in the Quran, but you know people to varying degrees hold them to be true. Okay, like the belief that Jesus traveled to England when he was a child. Okay, or that um, Mary and the mother of Mary traveled to Ireland and they blessed a spring in Ireland. Okay. First of all, that's, you know, kind of hard to believe. Secondly, it's not mentioned anywhere in the Bible, okay? It's very unlikely that the writers of the Bible even knew that England and Ireland existed. I mean, the Apostle Paul talks about Spain being the end of the world, Okay. So these things are unlikely, but they become traditions, and you can go to these places today, and you know, people you know, make pilgrimages to these locations uh, to pray there and drink the water from the, the same uh, well that you know, the Virgin Mary drank from in Ireland. Okay. So again, those are where we're talking about traditions, and the traditions uh, are really what become an issue here. Okay, so we're gonna to have to balance this narrative as we go through between what historical sources show us and what the traditions say. Uh, the good news, however, is we end up at the same place in either case, which is you know, what really matters. Uh, we know at the time of the prophet, early 600s AD, Mecca was a shrine city, it was a major trading hub, it was a place of religious pilgrimage. And the center of the pilgrimage was a shrine called the Kaaba, which means cube. It was a black cube structure. Um, There is still a Kaaba there today, of course. It's not the same structure. It's been rebuilt many times. But we know uh, that there were 360 idols in the Kaaba, representing gods from tribes all over Arabia. And this was seen as a good thing, by the way, Uh, Because the tribes, as we mentioned last time, they lived in a state of, you know, basically semi-warfare. You know, if, if we met out in the desert, my tribe met your tribe in the desert, you know, it was quite likely that we would fight. And it was completely legit for us to kill you and take your stuff, including your idols. Okay, Mecca, of course, is the training center. It was a city of truce, a city of peace. This is where everyone could come to trade. It was sort of like a a UN in New York. So, I mean, if you go to a session of the United Nations in the middle of New York City, you have representatives from countries that aren't allowed in the United States, right? There are representatives from Iran, for example, who normally aren't allowed to be here. and there's a lot of backdoor negotiations that go on. So this is this was like the good place. This was like the, the United Nations. And people could come to worship together at the Kaaba. No weapons were allowed in there, no violence. If you committed violence in that... Um, venue. You got in a lot of trouble. Uh, your, your tribe could be ostracized. And so the idea is everybody is respecting everybody else's gods and worship. And of course, a lot of other stuff is going on. There's poetry competitions, there's singing, uh, camel racing, horse racing, exchanging news, and lots of trading. Okay, so that, that is the reality um, at the dawn of Islam. Okay, we know that much. Now, how you get there, that is where there's some dispute. Uh, Exactly what was it like in centuries before that, and so forth. Okay, so what we do know is the Kaaba was a pilgrimage site from is as far back as anyone can tell. We don't have any historical records of when it first became a pilgrimage site, but this is also a problem because we, we don't really know when the city of Mecca began. Um, there's a lot of dispute among historians about whether Mecca is even mentioned anywhere prior to Islamic sources. Um, there is a place called Makora, which is mentioned in a good deal of sources, and some people think this is Mecca, and some say it wasn't. Okay, so we, we really don't know. Uh, what we do know is that many of the same rituals that were performed today were performed then, such as walking around the Kaaba. Um, And and this was not limited to Arabia, of course. Pilgrimage is a common thing almost everywhere in the world, and very similar kind of rituals took place, right? In places where there's water, you have to wash yourself. Um, Of course, that's not the case here in Mecca, but the idea of walking around the shrine, um, this this is something that's common in, in lots of places. Uh, We also know that in the corner of the Kaaba was a stone known as the Black Stone, which is said to have been a meteorite or have some other sort of heavenly, unearthly origin, right? Uh, It's it's still there, of course. And this is significant. It's like the cornerstone of the Kaaba. So when the Kaaba had to be rebuilt during the life of the prophet, uh, Muhammad was chosen to be the one to lay the cornerstone, which is a very important incident we will discuss in a later episode. But anyway, those things that go on today were known to to go on in the pre-Islamic era. Now, some historians believe that there were Kaabas all over Arabia. And they also believed that they had different stones, that the the idea of a cornerstone was common to them. Uh, There's one said to have had a white stone, one had a red stone, and so forth. Uh, The Kaaba was the only one that the entire building was made out of stone, and that's why it's the only one that survived to this day. Again, we we don't know that. There's only some vague references um, that, that may or may not indicate this. Okay, Another thing that is very significant, though, is we do know that to some degree, the Kaaba was dedicated to Allah, okay, which of course means the God, and, you know, is the term for God in Islam. Now, it's really unclear, and this is where there's a lot of dispute to what degree that was okay so to some degree in the time um even before muhammad began to prophecy um, there was a sense of the kaaba being dedicated to allah and it still had the other 360 gods in it and in fact one of the most common rituals was to um, call out formulas that basically said something to the extent of uh, you know uh, Allah is the greatest, and all these other gods belong to him. So definitely, I mean, this is not the monotheism of Islam at all, of course, because one of the first things that the Prophet will do is destroy those idols. But there, there is a sense of an Allah who is somehow related to the shrine, but as an overall god, bigger than the others. Uh, and I mean, that this is one of the most controversial issues in, in history, exactly what that means. For example, the, the prophet's father was named Abdullah, which of course means servant of Allah. Now, exactly how prominent the Allah worship was compared to the others is what we really don't know. How long had that been going on, uh, and in how big was that? Because remember... Tribes are coming from all over Arabia to this one site. That's why it's got over 300 idols in it. So it could be that this was something more of the Quraysh tribe, which is the the tribe of the prophet who controlled Mecca at the time, um, more than other tribes. Okay, we really don't know. Okay, and really any any information out there on this subject is highly sensitive because people generally have an agenda one way or the other. Uh, Depending on what point they're trying to make, they either make the the Quraysh sound very, very pagan or not very pagan at all, depending on what your agenda is. So let's look at what the traditions surrounding the Kaaba are. okay welcome back okay so we're talking about the Kaaba and as we say the the, the the actual history of this prior to Islam is very sketchy but Islamic tradition and this is pretty well generally accepted says um, that the Kaaba was established as a place of worship um, by Ishmael who is of course the son of Abraham. Um, for the Bible. And of course, we're not going to go into the, the whole narrative and how it, um, the, the divergence with the, the Jewish version and the, and the Muslim version, but if we take the idea of, you know, Abraham being the, the first kind of named patriarch uh, in the scriptures, you know, sort of the father of monotheism, uh, what happens is it's said that he establishes the Ka'aba, and of course, most of the rituals that are involved in the Hajj uh, come from this story, uh, from Hagar, who is the mother of Ishmael, um, being cast out, of looking for water in the desert, and so forth. So all the things, the, the well of Zemzem, um, going back and forth between the mountains, all of this comes from the story of, of of Ishmael and in Abraham primarily, okay. So Ishmael establishes this center of worship, and it's important here um, to identify that this is like the true monotheism that God teaches to Abraham, and we we have to distinguish this. It's not it's not Judaism. Okay, although there is a common trend. So it's often presented, we talk about the Judeo-Christian Islamic tradition, as if it goes one, two, three. And in some sense it does, but the, the belief is in Islamic tradition that God deputizes Ishmael, who establishes true monotheism. We know that the Israelites, later the Jews, Um, deviate. We know that the Christians massively deviate, and that the prophet Muhammad gets a message bringing it back to the original. So the idea this is original monotheism that continues. Now, uh, this again is another um, very... um, controversial point as well. Uh, the term in Arabic for someone who is a true monotheist at the time is a hanif. So the hanifs are people who practice this true, correct monotheism during the time when um, the Israelites were practicing their version of, of monotheism and later the Christians. Uh, and there's really a lot of dispute about how many hanifs, uh, there actually were in the Arabian Peninsula uh, there was definitely monotheism going on in the Arabian Peninsula you know at this time in the centuries prior to uh, Muhammad um, and and this could be influences there were influences from from all over there were um, Jews and Christians um, there was one of the main christian churches was the church of ethiopia in fact this is where the early muslims take refuge and so they had connections with yemen so so there is this idea of monotheism but the idea of the hanifs being the people who preserve the correct monotheism during these years okay now as the tradition goes um the kaaba was maintained by a tribe called the johram who were from yemen Uh, And they became sinful, and they let the Kaaba turn into a place of sin. You know, it really uh, went downhill. They are driven out by a tribe called the Chaza, who kept to the monotheism for a while. Uh, Now, this... Again, I mean, the tribe is a real tribe. Exactly when this is supposed to happen, uh, we don't know, but tradition says it's about 400 years before Islam, so we're talking about 200 A.D. or so. Now, the leader of the Khuzah is a person named Amr bin Luhay. Now, supposedly, he got injured, and he met some people in the desert who had idols, and they were praying to these idols for healing, and he thought this was a really good idea. And so he brings the idols to the Kaaba. Now, the reason he thought this supposedly is because the idols came from Syria, that's what he thought, they came from up north, and he believed Syria to be a place of the prophets. So in general, what we're talking about is is him being aware basically of Israelite monotheism up to the north and west. So anyway, he encourages everybody to bring their idols Thinking this is going to enhance the spirituality of the Kaaba. And they do. You know, most of the tribes, most of the households have their own idols. It's right, it's even talked about in the Bible with Rachel, where she has her household gods. She steals the gods from her father, right? They're, they're idols. So they all bring them and they jump on this bandwagon. Now he is not replacing the worship of Allah in this story, but he's supplementing it so uh, according to the story this continues to be a place for the worship of god but now he's just added all these subordinate deities that he thinks can heal you now of course this is this is blasphemous okay um now what what some historians think is that the bedouin had an issue with imagining an unseen god so they would have idols, but also they would pray to things. Uh, praying to rocks was a big thing, okay? Uh, and I mean, this is not meant to sound weird, you know, rocks are part of the land, they're part of nature, it's what you, you, you know, nature is what you need to survive. Um, idols are kind of, you know, they are rocks or wood that have been carved. So the idols sort of help you visualize okay? And, I mean, even one of the traditions about the Bedouin says that the, when they came to a new campsite, they'd choose four rocks, make an idol out of one rock, and use the other three to set up the campfire, okay? So, th- this is something that was common, and the idea of, you know, a god you couldn't see that didn't have some kind of physical uh, manifestation to it, they couldn't couldn't relate to. So, they put all these idols in the Kaaba, um, which make it easy, um, you know, for you to relate to God. Now, I mean, this is really easy. To see, I mean, if you think of an Orthodox church, you think of even some Catholic churches where, I mean, we have statues of the saints. You have statues of the Virgin Mary that you pray to, and that you know supposedly people see them crying or bleeding, and you know they can heal you and so forth. So this this idea that even monotheists want to have the, these you know idols. I mean, essentially. Um, is not unusual, but it's something, of course, that Islam is going to be very uh, strongly against. Okay, so the the issue we should get here is this is not exactly polytheism, this is not like Thor and Loki and, and the whole deal, but it's definitely not monotheism, the way it's going to be in Islam. All right, so as you imagine, Luhai becomes known as the guy who introduces paganism to the Kaaba, Okay, not to all of Arabia, because it was already there, uh, but to the Kaaba. He turns this shrine of God into a pagan uh, shrine, which supposedly happens, you know, around 200 AD, and so there's no no doubt what we're supposed to think of him. In fact, there's a hadith that relates the, the, the prophet saw Luhi dragging his intestines in hell. Okay, so he's in trouble. Now, that's the only thing that we have religious sources for, okay? And, and what it tells us is that, okay, basically the Kaaba is being used for proper monotheism up until this time, around 200. Uh, it gets ruined by Luhay, but it continues to be a, a sanctuary of God in some sense, and then we get up to the time of the prophet where we, we actually have, you know, records. Okay. Now, whether that's true or not, it it does fit the pattern. Uh, now, a more secular version of this says that probably, and we're gonna talk a little bit about this, uh, I'm getting a bit ahead here, uh, but a lot of secular scholars believe that the term Allah in Mecca, in reference to the Kaaba, before islam actually refers to alat who is the sun goddess of the area who we're going to discuss in more uh, detail but one of the reasons has to do with the actual meaning of the word remember allah is not a personal name even though you know many many americans think it is uh, you know that allah is like odin or zeus or something the word means the god Okay, and so it's like if you use the term "the boss." Okay, I mean there's all, people all over the place are talking about the boss. They're not talking about the same person, but it's you know in in our office that's the boss, and in, in this office that's the boss. So, you know, saying uh, the records, the, the few records that we have, talking about the Kaaba being the shrine of the God, um, does it does it mean? The, the monotheistic God of Islam, or is it just meaning that it's it's the God that it's dedicated, who's Allah? Uh, and this, if, if you're not familiar with Semitic languages, uh, there are no capital letters in Arabic. I mean, they're really not a useful thing in any language, but saying the God, meaning Allah, and the God, just meaning referring to someone else, it's it's like saying, you know, whatever, the table, okay? So anyway, this is just to explain why it's uh, confusing and uncertain. Okay, so let's take a moment here and talk about this idea of Allah in Arabia prior to the coming of Islam, okay? We do know from... All sources that Allah was known and worshipped among the people of Mecca uh, before the coming of Islam. Okay, now, in, according to the tradition, of course, this was a continuation of the original monotheism of Abraham and Ishmael. Okay, was it an influence of Christians and Jews who were in the area? For example, the city of Medina had Jewish tribes, and it would be it would be run by Jews. Uh, at the time of the prophet was it the result of the trade networks from Mecca which stretched down into Yemen and in, in Ethiopia which is a Christian country up into Syria which is Christian and into Egypt okay um, does it come from there we don't know okay um, and then of course remember that we have massive persecutions going on in the Byzantine Empire where basically every other, Christian denomination other than Eastern Orthodox, and there were lots of them, uh, was considered heresy, and so people uh, fled, excuse me, in all directions. So a lot of people fled. You have a lot of refugees, religious refugees fleeing into the desert. So you have all types of Christianity in Arabia, um you have you know versions of monotheism that some consider christian maybe not uh and so forth okay so we get the question is this the same allah as in islam now this is a question that can never be answered of course okay it this is not like talking about thor or poseidon um a a a god that has a personal name, and so we can we can tell. Right? Again, the, the word means the god, so I mean, that term is used really everywhere, even in non-monotheistic religions. In, in Hinduism, there are points where they talk about the god. Well, they, they don't mean it in any way in the same sense as a monotheistic god, but it's used to refer to sort of like a world spirit and so forth, something that is omnipresent, okay? Um, So to argue whether it's the same or not is really, really um, difficult in in, in an end, meaningless, because we know all these influences were already there, okay? All right. Um, What's for sure is that the, the Arabs are not worshiping Allah the same way they will after Islam. This is not a monotheistic deity, as I said. I mean, he's got 360 other gods um, with him in the Kaaba, and this is seen as a good thing. And in fact, uh, of course, the worst infidelity, the worst sin in Islam is shirk, which means... Um, ascribing partners from God. It's where we get the same word for shariq, for for an actual partner. All right, in a similar vein, I, I don't want to open up a whole another can of worms here, uh, but just to mention it, uh, historians today... Uh, pretty much trace how um, the the Israelites became monotheist. Of course, they were originally a Canaanite people from what is today uh, Palestine. But they could pretty much trace how the the God Yahweh uh, went from being one of the many deities of the Canaanite people to becoming the monotheistic God of the Bible. And generally, all the sources show this happening about 700 to 500 BC which is the time when the the Israelite tribe is in captivity in Babylon, which, if you're familiar with the Old Testament of the Bible, this is fairly late in the Old Testament, well past the halfway point. I mean, King David and Solomon are said to have lived around 1000 B.C., Now, because um, the Canaanites put a lot in stone, uh, we have some pretty clear evidence. Um, Before that, we can see very clearly that Yahweh is said to have a wife, Astarte, who is also a god. Uh, We can see where he fits into the Canaanite uh, pantheon of, of many pagan gods. But it's really when the, particularly when the Israelites are moved into Persian captivity, um, which comes after the Babylonian period, where the monotheism really begins to take hold. And this, of course, is because the Persians were monotheists. They're really the oldest, definitely the oldest existing monotheistic faith is Zoroastrianism, which Zoroastrianism is, is kind of a, a, a dualistic faith. But, but it definitely has the idea of the good God being one. Uh, there is even some monotheism in Egypt briefly with Achenaten and this is one of the things that uh, you know, we talk about King Tutankhamun being a rather insignificant boy king, but that's I mean he's actually significant and he returns Egypt back to the the polytheistic religion that existed before. Anyway, that's enough controversy that could keep us busy for uh, a long time, but I mean, definitely, you know, any any serious scholarship, unless you're in a religious se- uh, seminary, traces this history of how Yahweh becomes this monotheistic God of the Israelites. Now again, this is not my area of specialty. I haven't but the archaeology bears it out pretty well. So this could be what is happening in Arabia at the same time. Um, Some scholars think that there was a conception of Allah as an overarching God, particularly because the pagan gods were limited in their geographic scope, right? If the pagan god belonged to a certain tribe, some of them belonged to a certain oasis, a certain um, area of the desert. Others had a certain um, sphere of influence, like rain or fertility or something like that. And so the idea of God being this overarching god, Allah being this overarching god, who you appealed to when you were outside the, um, the realms of these others. Like if you were traveling and you were in the desert, you know, away from your tribal area, people would pray to God. Another uh, area was usually in sea travel as well. And so the idea that this general God behind the others... Uh, starts to become more and more of a monotheistic god. It could be what's going on here. Okay, so these are some of the ideas of what's going on in Arabia in these centuries uh, before we have really strong influence. Of course, when we get to the area around 200 to 600 AD, uh, there is a lot of influence from Christian and Jewish tribes and... um, refugees moving into the area. Okay, so okay. having said that about the concept of Allah, what do we know about the actual pagan idols that were worshiped? And now one of the best sources we have about these, uh, first of all, a number of them are mentioned in the Quran, there are lists, but one of the first uh, comprehensive sources for the religion of pre-Islamic Arabia is Hisham ibn al-Kalbi, who he wrote about uh, 800 A.D., so very early Abbasid period. Um, and it's about the second century of Islam. And his famous book Kitab al-Asnam, which means the Book of the Idols, lists uh, all the different pagan idols and which tribes worship them and so forth. Now, a lot of these, again, I said, are mentioned in the Quran, so this would seem to be common knowledge at the time. We're not going to go through them all here, except to say that the list is huge. It's, I mean, really, really long. So it's easy to see how they got 360 idols to put in the Kaaba. And I'm going to refer to these as idols here rather than gods because although some of them did have large followings with temples and sort of the status of pagan gods, in some cases we're, we're actually talking about just a piece of wood or stone uh, where there's only one copy of it, and, and that's the whole thing. So, I mean, really, it's just a single idol. Uh, some of these refer to natural objects— Right, the moon, the sun, water, oases. Some of these appear to be ancestors who become uh, revered and then worshipped, uh, like Rayan, who was an idol of the Umayyad branch of the Quraysh, which of course is extremely important. This becomes the first ruling dynasty in Islam. Uh, but one of their pagan idols was Kayan, and this is in the genealogy of the tribe. We can see this is one of the ancestors of the tribe. Okay. Now, some of these we only have information about from the Quran or Islamic tradition. There's no other information. Does't mean um, they weren't real, that they weren't really worshipped. It just means that's the only information we have. like uh, two of the most infamous, of these pagan idols were Isaf and Naela. Now these are said to be two people who committed adultery in the Kaaba. This is uh, way back in the time of the Juhrom. Uh, they had sex in the Kaaba, and this is when the Kaaba had degenerated and become a peace, a place of sin. And so God turned them to stone. and then in their stone form, they became two of the idols that remained in the Kaaba that evil old Luhai set up there. But that's the only record we have of them uh, uh, is this story. Okay? However, The more popular and more dominant of the pagan gods mostly came from the area of Nabatea which is up in Jordan today and of course Nabatea is now most famous for the city of Petra in Jordan, the great stone city which is believed to have been their capital. Uh, And this was an independent kingdom from about 200 B.C. to 100 A.D., but even after that, they were conquered by the Romans, and so Nabataean culture continued. I mean, the Romans basically let people do their own things. This is why Jewish courts could continue even under Roman rule. Okay, so the Nabataeans were very important. Uh, They controlled the spice trade in the area, which would, of course, give them a big influence down in the Arabian Peninsula. Among these Nabataean gods, uh, the first one to mention is Alat, who we mentioned slightly earlier. Now, Alat is a goddess, and she was worshipped throughout the Arabian Peninsula. Now, if that name sounds similar to Allah, this is not a coincidence. And there's a lot of dispute about these names, where they came from, and who they refer to. Uh, and this is partially because uh, the word El uh, means God in in the ancient Semitic, some of the northern ancient Semitic uh, from Sumeria and such. The word is L for God. Okay, we also know the word L means the in many uh, Semitic languages. In well, okay, uh, in ancient Akkadian, which has a big influence on Arabic, uh, the word is Allah, which is very similar. I mean, this is this is where we're going to get the uh, Arabic word for a god, La. Okay, All right. So you have a lot of repetition of sounds with these, the the l and the La sound. Okay, and so this gets extremely confused. This is how we get something like El Al, for example. Um, and so a, a lot of deities are referred to as the God. And as I said, there, there is no capital letters in Arabic. So when, when you're saying, the god it's not clear if you're referring to allah as the the one god in monotheism or just a reference to a god that you had just mentioned or someone would know right if you're in a shrine that's dedicated to allah and you say allah that's meaning the god could be referenced to to allah okay so th- these become ex- extremely confusing particularly when they get they get uh, adopted by other dialects and so forth. Now, in, interestingly, I just have to go off on a tangent here. Um, I can't let this pass. Um, this is why um, the Muslim profession of faith has so many L and A sounds in it, right? La Allah, il Allah. Okay, um, and also both the letters, the letter L and the letter A, the Aleph, are both straight lines in Arabic, which is why Arabic calligraphy has a distinctive shape of a lot of uh, long vertical lines in it. But anyway, if, so, so L is, is one of the most important letters in Arabic, because obviously the name of God is used in so many expressions, right? Alhamdulillah, Ashkor Allah, insha'allah. Right, a lot a lot of L sounds in Arabic. Okay, now if you've seen the movie Lawrence of Arabia, right, which is which is this typical thing. I mean, it's supposedly true story of T. E. Lawrence, uh, this smart white guy who basically goes and teaches all these Arabs, you know, everything they've forgotten about their own culture and so forth. Uh, I mean, extremely, extremely condescending movie, uh, but. You know, people love it. It won an Academy Award. Okay, you you notice the Arabs in that movie call him Arantz, Supposedly because they cannot pronounce the letter L. Now, of course, this is ridiculous to anyone... And and the movie is based on T.E. Lawrence's book, His Life Story. This is, of course, ridiculous to anyone who who has, I mean, even taken one semester of Arabic would know this, right, that L is one of the most common letters in the Arabic language. So it just gives you an idea how seriously you should take this thing. Uh, And and by the way, I I, I can't resist going off on this tangent further. You say, okay, well, okay, why does this ridiculous stereotype get out there that Arabs can't pronounce the letter L when they do all day long. Okay, the, where this comes from is that in many East Asian languages, there is not a distinct L sound. Like in Korean, for example, L and R are the same letter. And this is why it's, it becomes very difficult for native Korean speakers to, to speak English and you know, distinguish words like right and light, for example. So the assumption then, now you have to remember, in, in Lawrence's time, okay, Arabs were considered, quote, Oriental peoples, all right? You, if you studied Arabic, you studied it in an Oriental studies department, right, along with China, Japan, and so forth. So they're making this blanket assumption that, quote, again, this is in scare quotes here, you know, quote, Orientals can't say the letter L, so that must include Arabs, okay? Just say a lesson, Be, beware of so-called experts. It's like anybody on, on the news talking about Al-Qaeda or Al-Qaeda or so forth. I mean, you, you shouldn't take someone like that seriously, okay? Um, but this is uh, an interesting thing. And in any case, I mean, much of T.E. Lawrence's uh, life story was disputed by people who knew him. Anyway, that is a, a long divergence, but interesting point I cannot let pass because you know they're they're saying that Arabs can't pronounce l, but this is actually the source of so much confusion we have because not only do they pronounce it, but it's used so much um, that that it's very confusing things that have the name of al in them um, exactly where they're coming from. Even more so, and this is another um, source of this, but it's, it's related to this, um, the supreme God among many of the Canaanite tribes was called El. And this is, going back to what I mentioned earlier, it's sort of believed as, as Yahweh was a distinct God of the people who became the Israelites, it's believed that this, that concept and the concept of El merged together. And so you get, as monotheism develops among um, the Israelites, that, I mean, God still has the personal name Yahweh, but it's not used, and in fact, it becomes so not used that even among Jews now, you're not supposed to say it, or if, if you write it, you write it with some of the letters missing, okay? That's off our subject today, but... Again, this feeds into the confusion of the prevalence of gods that have some version of El or multiple instances of El, La, in their names. Okay, uh, This is the first deity that we see attested to in outside sources. So the Greeks associated a lot with Aphrodite. Aphrodite, of course, their goddess of fer- fertility and sex. Um, and in, in fact, in the 5th century BC, the o- oldest records we have, the historian Herodotus, who is cited a lot, um, says that Aliat is the name that the Arabians give to Aphrodite. And so they associate it with being the uh, exact same thing. Now, definitely, as we go further north into what is now Syria, Jordan, uh, in, in that area... We find a lot of statues of a lot that look like Greek statues that look like statues of Aphrodite. In some cases, the names are merged. And again, now we're up into the area where things are being carved in stone, so we do have a lot of artifacts. So um, we have some places where uh, she's actually called Athena a lot or Minerva a lot, and so forth. So whatever this goddess is, whatever the the original origin, it merges with a number of um, Greek goddesses. Okay, and again, it's very hard to separate these identities out, unless you believe that you know, Athena and lot are real living deities. These are concepts, they're characters, and they get merged and combined. I mean, no one's got copyright in, in that day. Okay, so this is how we get you know references to something that sounds like Merlin appearing in, in Germany and Ireland and Scotland and so forth. Okay, what we do know is that Alat was one of the principal goddesses of the Nabataeans and the principal goddess of Petra. Now, where she fit in the actual family differs. Uh, Again, because different shrines, different areas, different cities have different versions of this. In some cases, she's the mother of the gods. In the version of the story that gets transmitted to Mecca and is enshrined there, in this case, she's a sister of other gods, uh, principally Al-Uzza, who is another goddess, and uh, Al-Uzza had become the main goddess of the Quraysh tribe. As we said, Quraysh, very important. Uh, and, and she is mentioned in, in both the Quran and in the Book of Idols. Okay, we're told that the people of Quraysh, that is the people who controlled Mecca, were worshipping three goddesses, Alat. lot al-Uzza and Manat. Manat is the, the third of these three sisters. In addition, each of these had major shrine cities outside of Mecca, um, most of which are not there, but al-Uzza had a major shrine near the city of Ta'if, which is in the Hejaz near Mecca. Okay, in Petra, there are carvings of the three of them together. as like a trinity. Now scholars have speculated whether these all started out as the same god and then different tribes, different branches developed them and then they got merged back together again. um, There is some identification of them with Isis, not the terrorist group, but the Egyptian god, Isis, and so forth. What we do know is there are tremendous similarities among them and other Greek gods. Okay, Uh, now not not wanting to go into too many of these, so I'll just mention one more, and a very important god in Mecca is Hubal, or Hubal. Uh, This name is almost certainly related to the Canaanite Baal, or sometimes it's called Baal, who is one of the, uh, of course, an infamous, infamous idol in the Old Testament. Who is, I mean, basically the major competitor of Yahweh. Um, and of course, in the Old Testament stories, the Israelites are always worshiping Baal, uh, and they get in trouble and they get punished. But the reality is, of course, we, there's plenty of evidence that Baal was a major, major deity of um, different Canaanite tribes was worshipped throughout Canaan, and so the biblical stories that have all these competitions going on back and forth um, between God or Yahweh and Baal probably reflect the fact that you know up until this period of time, uh, late in the Old Testament, the the Persian um, exile that. Israelites were worshiping both of them, and and others, okay, Um, but anyway, uh, in the version in Arabia, it becomes Hubal. Uh, Hu, as as you know, if you know from Arabic, is related to Hua, which means he or it, so that is probably what the combination is, so it's like the same name. Uh, Now Hubal is, more than any of the others, is associated with one uh, specific idol, so often when they're talking about him, they're talking about a, the, the one specific idol of Hubal. Okay? And this is an idol uh, that was in Mecca, that was in the Kaaba, and it's said to have been stone except for one arm was gold. Now the reason you had to use this specific idol and none others is because the function of Hubal was divination. I mean essentially fortune-telling. So you had to you had to go to this one idol, and what you were supposed to do is you threw seven arrows in front of it, and how the arrows landed told you what was going to happen. Okay, so they had you know people who were trained to uh, to read this, you know, sort of like the, the cracks in the tortoise shell in the in the I Ching, uh, and so this is a another major god of the people of Mecca. Now there are some scholars who claim that the Kaaba itself was set up and dedicated to Hubal. Again, this we don't know for sure. Okay, so we have you know, several different um, theories that are put out by different scholars of what the Kaaba actually started out as. So some saying it was Hubal, some saying it was Alat, the, the moon goddess, Alat. Um, and, of course, the Islamic tradition is it was set up by Abraham and Ishmael as a place of worship um, for, for a god, the you know, the one true god of monotheism. Okay, Now, e- exactly what happens in the centuries leading up to Islam, like I say, you can see here we have many different theories of what was actually going on. And as I said, unfortunately, we don't know for sure. What we do know for sure, though, is what the situation was in the early 600s A.D., when Islam begins, when Muhammad first uh, receives the message. So exactly how we got to that point, not sure. But we do know we have a point where the Kaaba in Mecca is a site of pilgrimage. Uh, People are coming from all over Arabia, and it has 360 pagan idols, but there is also the sense that it is the house of Allah, the god, which is to to some extent seen as a larger, bigger god than these idols, um, but is not you know, obviously true monotheism because, I mean, later on the prophet is going to destroy those idols and rededicate the Kaaba. So this is sort of the position we find ourselves in. Now, it would be nice if I could give you a much clearer and definite picture of, you know, what the religious situation was like when the prophet begins, what he's facing, um, but there's, there's still you know, there will probably always be a lot of um, uncertainty about this. Okay, well, that's all for today, for this uh, episode, talking about the religions of pre-Islamic Arabia. Uh, Starting next time, we're going to talk about the life of the prophet, and in that case, you know, we do have much more definite records and we, we can be a lot more certain about this but in any case thank you very much for your kind attention and we hope you will stay with us in the future thank you for all your kind comments and um, we hope to see you then thank you very much shukran Zealand wa mama salama